The first time I reached out to Dr. Ken Duckworth for an interview was because I needed an expert. This was several years ago, and Ken fits the profile of an expert. Totally. Medical director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, double board certified in adult and child adolescent psychiatry. What I didn't realize, and what Ken taught me, is that I was also an expert. And sure, I've been hosting shows about mental health for years now, including this one. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Turns out I've been an expert since before I ever talked about mental health into a microphone. Because I've dealt with mental illness personally. I've lived it. I've dealt with mental illness in my family, among people I love. I've tried things, and some have worked and some have not. And according to Ken... The most expert person I know in this area, I am an expert of lived experience. I suspect you are too. This is not Ken Duckworth merely being nice, and it's not Ken being patronizing. He believes, he knows that we are capable of gathering wisdom from just being out there in the thick of it. To that end, Dr. Ken Duckworth has written a book called You Are Not Alone, The NAMI Guide to Navigating Mental Health. It's a volume of wisdom about mental health for anyone who has a mind and wants to figure out why it does what it does. And Ken put some work into this book. He talked to 130 people from all walks of life, different generations, career fields, all across the board. Disclosure, I was one of them. I appear in the book. And I was happy to reconnect with my friend. Dr. Ken Duckworth, welcome back to Depression Mode. Well, thank you, John. And congratulations on the book. Yes, quite an adventure. <laughs> really, uh, it feels like wringing out every thought about mental health that I'm sure you have and putting it onto paper or at least into typed words. John, this was a book I needed. You know, my dad had very bad bipolar disorder and he's a very loving guy. So I'd go to the bookstores and I'd see stacks of memoirs and stacks of textbooks both of which I value. I was looking for a more integrative force where people would share what they've learned from the first-person experience, many, many, many memoirs, and you know, then synthesis of important questions uh, that you could get from experts. And so I go to the bookstore every five years or so, and I look for this book, and I think, isn't that funny? The book still isn't here. And then, of course, this is so long ago, it was pre-internet, which is hilarious. Wow. Then I look on Amazon. I look at mental health recovery book, and up would come the big book of AA, which, again, I like, but it's not really the book I had in mind. So at some point, I thought, you know something? I should just break down and try this. John, you're a successful author, so you probably didn't have this experience. <laughs> I type out outlines for an hour, and then I'd look at them, and I'd say, this is terrible. <laughs> then I throw it out. This is five years ago, eight years ago. Then the pandemic happened. And what happened is the explosion of interest in mental health. Even I could see that this was the moment. NAMI had never had a book. The largest organization in America related to mental health never had a book. I asked the CEO, I said, could we write a book? NAMI will have the copyright. You'll get all the royalties. This will be a big love fest for our community. You know, some of the original people who had been at the first NAMI convention. I interviewed a woman who was 100 years old who has since passed away. She was at the first NAMI convention. I'm like, this is a moment. Wow. What year was that? 
the interview was last year. The convention was 1979. Wow. Okay. So Nami's 43 years old. So Nami's accumulating interest on this book for 43 years. So <laughs> compounding. It's quite something, John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to get to the book and, and how comprehensive it is and, and what a great resource it is. But let's start with you and let's start with your association with the area of, of mental health and psychiatry. And that goes back to your dad. Yeah. So I'm eight years old. I'm playing in a fort in the basement underneath books and blankets. I think every child has done this. Sure. And, you know, as content as heck. And I hear these booming sounds upstairs. And I can't tell you whether it was my dad or the police officer, but it had something to do with my dad's manic episode and the policeman taking him away. And I couldn't understand what it was, but of course, nobody could talk about it. We're then in a U-Haul driving to Michigan in the snow. And I'm like, I think this has something to do with that police officer thing. But it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s, my mother said, oh, yeah, Chef Boyardee fired your dad in Philadelphia, but they offered him a job in Michigan. And so I spent my life trying to understand what is this thing that is so powerful that it can move a family 300 miles, but you couldn't talk about it. What is this thing that is that powerful? It's got to be like plutonium or nuclear weapons. Like, What is this thing? So you take a kid who's not that good at math, who never did well in a science fair, who is more interested in history and college football, and you turn him into a doctor. How does a kid like me go to medical school? Out of love. I wanted to understand what this was, and I wanted to help him. And so it turns out that there are 11 medical schools in America that do not require calculus. I got into nine of them. Okay. So you, you, you trod your course that was calculus free, but that could still make a difference. That was the idea. And okay. so, you know, it's an unusual psychiatry path. I really do know that. It hasn't always been well received, but now we're at a place where people value the first person experience in a whole new way, John. The idea that, you know, I did this out of love as opposed to being a history teacher you know, is fine now. Many people are acknowledging that in the mental health professions, we often get here through love or attachment. And then the first person experience, which I think has been very undervalued in our world. And it's one of the reasons I loved your book. It's just the first person experience. Like, what did you learn? What you went through? In collecting 130 people, I tried to collect as many voices and messages as possible. Yeah, that is a lot of people that you that you interviewed, 130 different interviews to form this book. What did you learn from such a massive undertaking that that you didn't know before? Because you've been in psychiatry for many years, very distinguished career, and then you set off on this odyssey to talk to all these people. What, what did you open your eyes to? What surprised you? Well, something I knew, but I was reminded of, John, is that altruism is alive and well. These people use their names and share their stories. And again, every moment, every one of these interviews, I gave people three or four ways out of it. You know, you can not do this interview. You can review the transcript. You can edit out everything you don't like. Here's the quotes we're going to use. If you don't want to do it, you every single person, it's like, I want to help another person. I went through something. I lost something. I had a dream broken, a relationship broken, a family member die. 
I'm here to share. And I knew altruism was alive and well, John, but our political discourse has gotten fairly unpleasant in America. And you can forget how beautiful people can be. Oh, I want to do this interview. People talking about very intimate, vulnerable things. Are you sure you want to discuss, you know, childhood sexual abuse and how that impacted you and losing your own kids later when you were addicted to substances? The quote is, Ken, if it happened to me, it happened to someone else. Well, what, what's been the change that you've seen in society that, that leads to this kind of thing happening? Because you talked about your dad and it's this powerful force that we dare not speak the name of. Yes. And now, you know, now we're in this world where people are, I mean, I think people have been starving to talk about it. People yes. couldn't wait for someone else to kind of break the dam. What yes. changed, do you think? That's such a good question. The short answer is I don't know. But I think you, John, the people in NAMI, famous athletes, actors and actresses, if they can be in this club, the club of the ordinary human condition with emotional thought or perceptual challenges, then I can be in it too. And I think that that makes a difference. And so... I can't say when it happened, but I don't think I could have written this book 10 years ago. I, I don't think I could have found people who wanted to share their story and use their names other than a few memoirists. But the idea, I had to stop simply because I was on a deadline. I could have kept going. I'd only planned to interview <laughs> 50 people. But what I learned, John, is that people were so amazing. I had to keep going. Every single interview, I learned something new from a different person. I interviewed a fantastic guy who talked about the fact that his daughter is likely to never recover from her symptoms. And this was a heartbreaking. I was hoping to write a book about recovery and people get better. There's dozens of those stories. I like those stories. And just by interviewing him, he's like, I teach family to family, which is a NAMI class, to give my life meaning and to make myself better for her. She's not going to get better. Her voices don't take Saturday off. They don't take Sunday off. She doesn't have recovery, but I give meaning to her life. She's not a statistic. And you interview someone like that, and it stays with you for a week, just a week. Like this man, a good man, good father, that's how he's walking around experiencing the mental health journey. And then you talk to someone else who realized that paper plates were life-changing. And I said, do tell. And <laughs> yeah. she said, well, I had bipolar disorder and I was at a support group. And I said, I can't manage my kitchen. The dishes are piled up three feet high. And at the support group, I learned two words that changed my life. Paper plates. She <laughs> said, I never did another dish while I was raising my kids. And my bipolar disorder was under poor control. And I thought, I've just got to keep going. I had never heard of paper plates. I'd never heard of paper plates as a strategy. Here I am, a double board certified psychiatrist with theoretically, you know, good qualifications to help people. And Paper Plates was like, there's expertise from living with things that we have underappreciated. We doctors, we mental health professionals, we academicians. And I thought, I just got to keep going. 
let's talk about that expertise because this is something that that you have been a proponent of. You and I know each other. We've worked on some things mm-hmm. together. And I, I love this idea that you can be an expert by going to medical school and being yes. double board certified, but there are other routes to expertise. Yes. Lived experience is expertise. So if you've lived with bipolar disorder for 20 years, you've probably picked a few things up. If you've loved a son or daughter with schizophrenia, you've probably learned a few things about communication strategies. If you were doing self-harm and then found DBT to be a lifesaver, your story could help other people. So the book is the synthesis of evidence-based medicine, which is you know all these fancy places you know, Stanford, and Harvard, and Emory, and researchers answering common questions, plus 130 people who say, here's what I learned. If you add it up, John, there's over 2,000 years of lived experience in this book. These people have been walking this mental health road as family members, as individuals, and they have something to teach other people. And that was their motivation, John. They wanted to help you, the reader. That was their motivation. And so when someone is coming at this book, how should someone approach it? Because it's, it's a resource. Like it's going to be dog-eared on somebody's table by going back to it so much. Is it a cover-to-cover thing or is it a dive through the index for exactly what you need thing? It depends. If you have obsessive compulsive disorder, And you really want to understand that better. I have a man who was misdiagnosed for four years. Then he realized that he had OCD through Google searches, not through visiting professionals. Interesting. I'm not anti-professional, but I just think it's interesting how people learn. He finally saves up $350 to see the one private pay psychologist in San Antonio, Texas, who looks at him and within three minutes says, you obviously have OCD and you need exposure response prevention. He then forms a company called NoCD on how to train professionals to do this specific type of psychotherapy. So if you were to flip through the index, you would meet his story, a man who was told by a professional to move away because his family was causing all his distress. And he's like, my family's great. They just didn't have the right diagnosis. And then in the back, two of America's leading experts on obsessive compulsive disorder explain why that particular psychotherapy is effective and how to find it. So you could do it a targeted raid. I'm going to learn about OCD. You go in the back, you read about Stephen Smith and obsessive compulsive disorder from Mass General Hospital's experts. Another way to do it is to take a look at sort of what helps people, the themes of recovery. These would be a bigger approach to the book. A person could experience a trauma and find somebody who had a service dog, somebody who did cognitive behavior therapy for trauma, somebody who tried ketamine, and how did that help them? And again, it's just their experience. It's not a randomized controlled trial. But in the back of the book, I have all the people who run all the randomized controlled trials. And you should be able to find somebody like you that you can identify with, 38 states, 11 self-identified race and ethnicities, 25 religious affiliation, 50 occupations. And then you should be able to find somebody who has studied what you've dealt with. That's the goal. That's what I was shooting for is lived experience plus traditional expertise. 
is the synthesis of you are not alone. And let's get back to the lived experience a little bit. How does, because it seems like a lot of people who have lived experience, who've learned things the hard way by going yes. through some of these things. And, and you know, I, I always tell people, I don't necessarily recommend other people watch videos on YouTube about Bigfoot, but it helps me with depression for some reason. (laughs) More with Dr. Ken Duckworth in just a minute, and we'll solve my personal mystery of Bigfoot. I'm just going to read an ad here, and we'll get back and resolve all that. First, though, I want to say that every time we make a show. Every time I write the script for a show, the big question is, what is the most important thing to get across to you, the listener? What do I want you to remember? What do I want you to learn from this and take away and and bring into your own life? And this time there were two things. One, that you are already an expert. And two, that we can use the knowledge and openness and inquisitiveness really that Ken talks about and demonstrates to change the world. We can make society better, less secretive, healthier. I actually debated which of these points to put first in the intro. You know, one, you are an expert, and two, we can change the world for the better. I decided to get the expert thing across first so that you'd feel empowered, you expert, when you realize that we can have a better world When it comes to mental health, we can get rid of the bullshit. We can help each other and everyone around us because we're experts. It's kind of what this show's all about. Back in a minute. Hi, I'm Hal Loveland. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. And we're the hosts of We Got This with Mark and Hal, the weekly show where we settle the debates that are most important to you. That's right. What arguments are you and your friends having that you just can't settle? Apples or oranges? Marvel or DC? Fork versus spoon. Chocolate or vanilla? Best bagel. What's the best Disney song? We Got This with Mark and Hal. Every week on Maximum Fun, we do the arguing so you don't have to. Oh, all answers are final for all people for all time. We got this. Back with Dr. Ken Duckworth, medical director of NAMI, author of the book You Are Not Alone. Let's uh, let's review some terms that are coming up in this episode. Cognitive behavior therapy, or CBT, is a popular form of therapy built around redirecting your mind to avoid negative or destructive thought patterns. Dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT, is a form of CBT aimed at people who have trouble with controlling emotions. The dialectical part in the name refers to combining acceptance of what's going on with awareness of what you would like to change. Anyway, we were talking about Bigfoot and how I love Bigfoot videos. Is it John? Is it distraction? Is it the absurdity? Is it the idea? I have size 15 shoes, so I'm always worried <laughs> that people have bigger feet than me. Like, what is it about that that is effective for you? You know what it is? It's it jolts me out of the mundane reality mm. where the depression often lives yes. and into this place where maybe there's this gigantic creature in the woods that somehow has eluded all of us. And I'm not necessarily a a believer or not a believer. I 
just kind of it's almost like it's science fiction reality yeah. show version but it takes you out of your experience it takes and me into out of my wonder head. into yes. wonder right? yes yep and that's it so that's beautiful so somebody <laughs> listening to this podcast can say i should try things that get yeah. me out of my own inner state which can be despair inducing at moments and really focus on something that gives me wonder i'm not really a bigfoot guy yeah, <laughs> you know, can Ohio State be beaten is something that is, you know, a virtual <laughs> obsession for a Michigan grad. And, you know, I waste way too much time on these questions. Yeah. Yeah. Why was Tom Brady a fifth round pick out of Michigan? <laughs> these, these are these are mysteries. These are compelling questions <laughs> for those of us from the Midwest anyway. But then how does someone take their lived experience and more importantly, trust their lived experience mm. that they are someone worthy of listening to themselves because oh. so much of this tears away your confidence, tears oh. away your self-esteem. How can we take advantage of this degree that we got? You John, know? that is such a brilliant question. It's as if you run podcasts on depression, really. <laughs> it's it's almost of, as if I've talked about it for uh, years oh my and God, years. Mind, but it's quite brilliant, though. How do we trust our own lessons? Yeah. How do we give ourselves the validation to say what I've been through is important and I can learn from myself? One of the people I invited in the back of the book, the traditional experts, again, this is a synthesis, was right. Judith Beck from the Beck Institute, whose father invented cognitive behavior therapy. And the idea would be, don't believe your automatic negative thoughts. You're not your automatic negative thoughts. And she would have you say, all right, well, let's take a look at what you learned that is wisdom. And the reasons to discount it are the following. And then you would insert your reasons. But actually, when I did those things, it actually helped me. So she would kind of do a critical analysis of your thinking. Don't believe your automatic negative thoughts. And consider the possibility that you have learned something. I think it's absolutely true that distortion that comes with depression is real. I think it's absolutely real. I went through something between grief and depression myself when my brother died. I'd lost my sister a decade ago, and I was fresh out of family. And so I'd lost my parents in a normal developmental sequence, but I lost my two older siblings. This was three years ago. And I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't think. It's very interesting, John. I spent my life studying mental health conditions, and I had poor awareness that I was falling deeper. I knew I was grieving. Cards were arriving and flowers were arriving every day. I was teary about my brother. I can't play Bob Dylan still because he loved Bob Dylan. You know, there's still all these things, but you know, then months are going by and I'm like, I'm barely functioning at work. I'm really struggling. And the question is, why did it take so long for me to get help why did it take me so long to recognize it? So I have a new respect for this complexity, right? It took somebody who loves me and my friends took one look at me at my monthly dinner and like, you look like hell. You need to get evaluated for medication. It was a very loving act. And of course, I went back to my psychotherapist. I thought everybody, you know, when they lost their sibling was just a wreck for a long time. Also interesting, John, getting back to expertise, was that a grief reaction? Was that major depression? Was that prolonged grief? The APA had an, a grief exclusion for depression. It was like a get out of jail free card. If you were grieving, you couldn't be depressed. 
This speaks to the imperfect nature of the professional world because we're describing symptoms that have undoubtedly thousands of different underlying biological dimensions. We put them in these categories. So I call it my grief depression thing. Was it a major depressive episode? Yes, but it was directly related you know, to the loss of my best friend and last sibling. And I feel like we just have to stay so humble about the professional side. Same tools worked. Medicine, psychotherapy, love, rereading grief cards, time, exercise, overtime. Took me months, though. I mean, months and months and months and months. I don't want to give you the wrong idea. When I went to see a, a local psychiatrist, I drove my car around the neighborhood like 20 times to find a parking spot right in front of his office because walking was physically overwhelming. So I have some respect for this experience, which people have described to me as a practitioner over the years. And I guess I'm just so humbled by it all. What would we call that in the 1980s? It couldn't have been a depression because there was the grief exclusion. Right. Right. There we go. So how do you trust yourself? How do you notice these things? I think part of the secret sauce is having people who love you, who can offer perspectives that you fail to see or believe. This is difficult because it's easy for people like me to get defensive or, you know, to say, ah, that's not the what's going on here. Because it's a matter of asking those people directly. It's not just waiting for them to come to you. It's pursuing that right. thought. Right. Well, I was missing work and not getting out of bed. And, you know, it was kind of hard to miss. <laughs> people you know, it was kind that. of Bigfoot is in the house now. <laughs> like <laughs> Kelly said to me, oh, this is what it would be like if you had no sense of humor at all. That would ah. be a very hard life. You're no fun. And I thought to myself, God, it's actually true. I haven't laughed in months because nothing is fun. So the ability to see it, the ability to recognize it is difficult. And I think the ability to say, well, what was that? Did I learn something from that? Well, I learned something that I have a vulnerability to this. And I should be careful going forward, especially if I experience another loss. So can I trust myself to know that? Boy. I'm not sure. If I hadn't gone out to dinner with my friends and had Kelly in my life, I'm not sure how it would have gone. I think for a lot of people, that moment of getting help, of finding that parking spot in front of the psychiatrist's office, or even just getting a, a diagnosis from somebody out of one of those appointments, mm. that's kind of where the lived experience expertise meets the the mm -hmm. academic training expertise. That's mm -hmm. that's when these two worlds kind of come together exactly. with kind of a thunderclap. Yes. And so what should people be prepared for in about getting a diagnosis, about mm. the the destiny that a magical new acronym bestows upon them <laughs> so that they could understand what's going on with them from both a clinical and lived perspective? Mm, such a good John, you're really killing it on the questions. A woman I interviewed from Texas said, Dr. Ken, you can't tame it until you name it. That is to say that she found getting a diagnosis to help her feel less self-blame. Oh, other people have this. This is studied. This is kind of normal then. You mean tens of millions of people have this thing? Oh, okay, great. Well, let's work the problem. And involve psychotherapy or exercise or a group or medications, whatever the tools are 
But it's the threshold question. I've been stumbling around with this for years. And then wait a minute. So not everybody is grateful when you say, I think you might have this condition. But I would say most people feel like it can be freeing to recognize that you're part of the human condition that falls into mental health or addiction challenges, and that there's things that we have learned. Now we're on to the traditional expert side. You can go to a NAMI family meeting. You can go to an AA. That's also lived experience, expertise. You can still integrate it going forward. But like you said, that's the thunderclap. That's like, okay, that's where it's pulling together. This is your experience. And this is what we know from studying millions of people. Yeah. What about the carrying around that term? Because I, I, I think it can be it can be good to know that, you know, you have major depressive disorder, you have mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder, that, that mm-hmm. you can kind of attach these these things to yourself, but it seems like it might also be limiting to kind of mm-hmm. the the complexity and nuance of the human psyche. Like how can someone manage that diagnosis as something that they are, but not all that they are. The chapter that I wrote early on in the book is called The Paradox of Diagnosis. It's useful to know your diagnosis, but you are not your diagnosis, right? Now, my dad had bipolar disorder. It was really helpful to know that. Lithium was a good treatment for him. He got sick a lot in the summer. It took us years and years and years to figure out these patterns. Had we been able to talk about it and learn from other people, we could have figured them out quicker. So he had bipolar disorder, was hospitalized probably 25 times. He was not his bipolar disorder. He is a playful, funny, loving man. My cousins used to say, how come you got the fun one? I'm like, I know, right? They weren't at Northville State Hospital with me, you know, later on. But they're like, so he was kind of delightful, charismatic. Who he was, was not his illness. But ignoring his illness is done at your peril. These conditions can kill people. I had cancer when I was a resident. It's very helpful to know that you have a certain kind of cancer and there's a certain kind of thing we can do to treat it. But I was not my cancer. I was just treated like a hero, John, right? So you're in the hospital. The hospitals are brightly lit. All the nurses are you know, well scrubbed and tidy. And there's big signs on the wall with Boston Red Sox heroes. You're a hero today on the oncology floor. Bipolar disorder can kill you just the same as cancer can. So my dad's at these state hospitals. And the basic message, if there was one on the wall, was pretend you were never here, right? That's the difference. And somehow we have conflated mental health conditions with who we are, right? And I think this is part of the risk. And one of the reasons I wanted to do the book in this way, most doctor books are, I'm the doctor. My patients have taught me everything. Now, let me tell you the way it is, and I'll disguise all the patients to protect their privacy. These people are not my patients. I'm not their doctor. I have a platform because I'm the doc for NAMI. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to give them the platform that most doctor books, it is technically written by a doctor. I freely admit that. I'm the lead author. But I feel like I was joined by 130 co-authors. And I thought that would be kind of flipping the whole thing on its head. Like, instead of me saying, you know, I'm keeping everyone confidential and here's the way it is, you could find people who would say, no, I actually went through this. I live in Austin, Texas. If you want to talk to me, 
you can find me, right? I open doors at my little church, just like you mentioned earlier. A woman said, and I, I think this is a direct quote, when you open the door for someone, our mental health, almost everyone walks through. And that's a direct quote she said to me. You can look her up in Austin, Texas. She's writing the book. Lovely human being. She'd be happy to talk to you. One of the other things is all these people are now going to be resources for people, right? They're not hiding who they are. Me, the doctor, didn't say my patients are my teachers, but they're all confidential. I didn't do it that way. I didn't want to do it that way. It is slightly radical within the mental health field or the professional field to flip it on its head. Certainly, I've taught, been taught a lot of things, and I'm incredibly grateful for what I've learned. And all the academicians who agreed to give uh, short answers to my questions at the back of the book were uniformly gracious. But I feel the part of the story that's untold is you've lived with depression for 20 years. What have you learned from that? Because there's someone else just like you, just like you, who doesn't know that there's someone else. If I had read that there was a family with a loving dad with bipolar disorder, and here's what they were doing to cope right. with it, I'd probably be a history <laughs> teacher. Like, I don't think I ever would have to become a psychiatrist to figure it out. Like, okay, we can work this problem. Lithium is the treatment for that. For the most part, there's a strategy of communication that Bill Miller developed, which is called motivational interviewing. Don't tell a person you are sick, you need help. Work with them, listen to them, find what they want and support it. You know, it would have changed my life. And that's why, because all these decades later, there still wasn't such a book, John, I thought, all right, I'm going to break down and write it. Right, right. Create what it is that you want to read. I mean, I often tell people, like, if I've gone through all this shit <laughs> that I've had to with mm -hmm. with mental health and with, with trauma and the family and everything, that, you know, maybe something good can come of it. Like, yes. I wouldn't wish these experiences or these disorders on anybody, but... Yes maybe I can share the wisdom and maybe somebody else, it won't be quite as hard for them. And that's the beauty of the book. One person after another said, if what I went through can help one other person, one, that's it. That's all I need to know. I've already seen it happen. Even early on in early reviews of the book, you know, people would send me emails and say, I never really thought about it this way in my own family. Ah, well, Let's talk about family because it's important to know what your family's health history is, whether that's, yes. you know, a tendency towards certain diseases or tendency towards mental health conditions. I think that's where a lot of the stigma comes from, mm -hmm. you know, because people are scared to talk about yes. mental illness because it's scary. You know, like he here's this invisible thing isn't showing up on an X-ray or an MRI yeah. and it can totally mess with you and, and ruin all sorts of things. People, you know, are scared of summoning it into the room by talking about yes. it. And I think that is especially true in families yes. because there's this feeling that it's it's your destiny. Like, did you ever go through that with your dad where you think, oh, that, that's my father. This I'm heading for this exact thing myself. Oh, my God. I remember crying at my uh, psychology teacher's class in 11th grade. And with no knowledge of genetics of any kind, he said, don't worry, Ken, this won't happen to you. I found that incredibly <laughs> reassuring based on absolutely no experience or evidence. So he was neither an expert 
in experience or evidence. He never shared that he had anything in his own life. What he was, was a good father moment for me because I was, you know, really quite traumatized by all this. And I was young and vulnerable. And my dad had his first episode about 17 and I was 17. And I was like, is this destiny? Is this destiny? And of course, what you come to realize is it's so much more complicated than that. Families can communicate about these things. It's also important. There's a whole chapter on family communication and how families figure out how to talk about it. Again, so my family didn't really figure this out. Duly noted. Well, could I learn from other people who did better? The answer is yes. There are families who, you know, lay out, here's our family history. You need to know this. Early marijuana use might be a risk for you because we have a family history of psychosis. These two people died by suicide two generations ago. I want you to recognize that. It's likely a mental health or addiction dimension to that. I want you to pay attention to that, especially during the big years. Three quarters of all mental health conditions occur before age 25. I want you to, don't ignore that. If you're feeling desperate or you're overwhelmed or something, get help because this runs in our family. It's as unsatisfying as that though, John. So you get the most world famous geneticist on your podcast and he'd say, how does it work? Well, things run in families. It's the same as diabetes. The uncle really has it. You know, one of the nephews runs a little high after watching a Super Bowl and indulging, you know, his sugars get a little high, but he's not really diabetic. And then there's three other unaffected family members and you don't understand why. And you're just not going to get the satisfaction of knowing. For all the progress we've made in genetics, which is brilliant, and Nobel Prizes will be given, the practical applicability is very low. So, you know, all you need to know is really mood disorders run in my family, meaning depression or bipolar disorder, psychosis, or the outcome of suicide or addiction. And you need to have that knowledge and have that conversation. I interviewed a woman from the South Asian community who said because they arrange marriages, these conversations are particularly difficult. Like if you reveal you have a complexity to a mental health condition, that lowers your draft stock. This is why I need to keep going. Each person taught me something different. And I just thought, well, I just had to stop because the book was due. But I could have kept going because I kept learning things like that had never occurred to me. Then in a rich marriage culture, that revealing a vulnerability that is mental health, which, of course, has a social meaning in that culture, which isn't necessarily affirming. She said, yeah, I'm taking a big chance because I'm lowering my family's draft stock, not just mine. More with Dr. Ken Duckworth in just a minute. Most game shows quiz contestants about topics they don't even care about. But for 100 episodes, the Go Fact Yourself podcast has asked celebrity guests trivia about topics they choose for themselves. And introduced them to some of their personal heroes along the way. Oh my gosh. Shut up. <laughs> oh, I feel like I'm going to cry. Oh my stuff. <laughs> it's so, so exciting to meet you. Join me, J. Keith Van Stratton. And me, Helen Hong, along with special guests DJ Jazzy Jeff and Faith Saley, plus some amazing surprise experts on the 100th episode of Go Fact Yourself. And join us twice a month, every month, for new episodes of Go Fact Yourself here on Maximum Fun.
back with Dr. Ken Duckworth, author of You Are Not Alone. He's going to refer to NAMI's In Our Own Voice classes. Just so you know, those are in-person events and videos where people share their experiences with mental health because it can help to hear that you're not alone. Something that always strikes me about your work and it struck me about this book in particular is that you embody a non-judgmental approach to these things. So if someone is is suffering, it's not a flaw in their character. It's not, you know, if it's an opiate addiction, there's behaviors that can change, but it's not, mm. it's a thing that happens to people. And I wonder if that is an intentional approach, a tactical approach on your behalf, or if it just, it's just the way you think about it. I think for me, when you realize that my dad was so fun, loving, kind, it would take you to a Detroit Tigers game in a heartbeat. Like you'd say, hey, Woody Fryman's pitching. He's like, let's get in the car. Like uh-huh. That's an affirming, loving play. Can I bring Bill Baker? Bring him. Let's go. Tickets were yeah. 50 cents at the time. Nice. I mean, you know, this is back when you know, Stegosaurus and Bigfoot were both walking the earth at the same time. <laughs> and but playing for the Tigers. He, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> then when he was hearing voices and manic, communicating with the microwave, thinking that it was talking to him, even I could see that this had almost nothing to do with who he actually was. That this was an illness process that was visiting him. And again, that's just kind of my core orientation. I think for some people, it's more difficult to see because their experience and the illness is more integrated into their selves. Do you know what I mean? But for me, I had this loving guy and then this person who heard voices and was manic and would get carted off by the police would just revisit the house every two years or so. And I thought, looks just like him, just like him. But, you know, my dad uses a microwave to heat up his coffee. This person has an illness process that I can't get my mind around. So that's kind of my core orientation. That's the pre-verbal approach. But then I interviewed a woman who got addicted to OxyContin. OxyContin was marketed as an opiate that didn't cause addiction. Again, I know there's been plenty of documentaries and lawsuits and settlements. But you talk about a person who was a victim of something. She has uh, social anxiety as a child, as a teenager, and hangs out with a few kids who like to drink and notice that drinking helps her with her social anxiety. She's 15 or 16, and she realizes it's much easier to get OxyContin from a friend's parent's medicine cabinet than it is to get alcohol. She becomes addicted to OxyContin. And so, you know, how is that? You know, the world was flooded. Massachusetts was a particular beachhead, and that's where I happen to live, and that's where she happened to live was a particular beachhead of the opiate epidemic, but it seems quite a bit not her fault. She was trying to change her state. Okay, fine. She was self-medicating. She didn't have the tools to understand how social anxiety works and cognitive behavior therapy. She read this book. She might know that, right? Like there are ways to get out of that experience, but she you know, did what a lot of people do, which is they do what their friends do. And uh, the idea that OxyContin was just flooded by pharmaceutical companies and doctors and pharmacists, and it was everywhere. So that's a good example of how you can look at a person and say, I see how you got there. 
I really see it. Yeah. Well, and and I I think that's can be a benefit of the medical community too, because a lot of the the doctors that I know, the clinicians I know, it's like, well, what good does shaming and blaming really do at this point? I think that's something that everybody could pick up on. Mm. It's like, okay, yeah, I got into a bad situation, or I got an illness, or I made a couple of bad decisions. Fine, but let's concentrate on what we need to do now. Mm. I think some people get so hung up on remorse and regret yes. over what they did that it starts to kind of calcify or metastasize mm -hmm. into I don't deserve help when in yes. fact you do. Now you got to reread Judith Beck and what is cognitive behavior therapy and what is it good for, right? It's on page 380 or something. You know, <laughs> it's like just reread that because that's really important. You know, because that's going to come back because your thoughts can drive some of your experience, your emotional experience. And so attending to your thoughts and not believing your most critical thoughts is surprisingly important and should be taught throughout high schools across America. Now, this might be more of a psychology question or a therapist question, but, you know, I'll, I'll throw it at I you I like anyway. psychology and I like therapy, too. Perfect. We have a, a Facebook group for the show and they they talk about stuff from the show, but they just sort of talk about amongst yes. themselves of like, here's something I'm running into. You guys ever run into this? What do you do mm -hmm. about this? They share ideas. They share jokes. It's great. And some people are saying, hey, I'm doing great. You know, I'm here to help others. Other people say, I am so discouraged. I've been working at this thing. I've been yes. going to therapy. I've read books. I listen to the podcast. I'm just, I'm still hitting a wall. How do we not get discouraged by a lot of these really persistent, parasitic mental illnesses? Such a good question, John. And I don't think there's a simple answer. But there are new things coming out. Learning from each other is one of them. Your Facebook group is one of them, right? That's a new development that, you know, most people couldn't avail themselves of till recently. I think there are new treatments, new ideas. Ketamine has been studied. Ketamine wasn't available. S-ketamine is now an FDA-approved variant. Transcranial magnetic stimulation just got approved for obsessive compulsive disorder that's also treatment resistant. And again, I don't think the medical tools are the answer. I think it's the synthesis of learning from each other, feeling understood, being part of a community, and using medical tools. But medical tools keep evolving, and that's really interesting. Even as some of our best medical tools are from the 1950s and 60s, it's very humbling, there are also medical tools. So what I encourage people to do, you know, is to breathe, find what works for them, find other people to connect to, and try other things. If you have treatment-resistant depression, you know, there's a rubric for that. Not saying it's easy. I'm not saying insurance pays for all of it. I'm not saying it's not a terrible battle. But there are other steps on the algorithm that you may not have tried. And that's what I encourage people to really just remember. The people in the back of the book are continuously getting grants and working this problem. Believe in them as you believe in yourself, that you can get through it. It's a wonderful book. It's a massive book. It's a well-researched book with all these interviews. And so the unfair question that I'll ask anyway 
is what is something that sticks in your mind that too few people know about mental health? Mm, Good question. When I wrote the book, I had imagined a chapter on the power of community. And what I did is I wrote a chapter called The Power of Peers in Community. And this is for mental health professionals. We don't really appreciate that the people who are in the hospital are benefiting directly from the other people they're talking to in the hospital. I got that all the time, that the people in the detox were the most inspiring to me. I had a woman who had a plan to die by suicide. She went to an In Our Own Voice presentation at her hospital, which she was mandated to do the night before her discharge, where she planned to die by suicide. And this person's just like her. Like, wait a minute. You lost everything just like me. You were living out of your car just like me. You were incarcerated just like me. You had nobody who loved you just like me. The woman said, yeah. And five years later, here I am teaching in our own voice at your hospital. And so the power of peers, how we help each other, is something that I think has been undervalued. And that's why I renamed that chapter. Mental illness is common, can be severe. If you can open the windows and let the sun shine through, learn from other people, talk about it, have conversations about it, don't feel ashamed of it. This is a universal human condition phenomenon. We can do better. Yeah. And I think the revolutionary idea that no matter where you are, you always have access to one expert, one lived experience expert is is such an empowering notion that, that mm. you put across here. Mm. That's exactly right. In general, how are we doing as a as a society, as this sort of collaborative entity where we're we're more open than we used to be, but it seems like we have as many or more challenges to our our fragile mental state than ever before. How are we doing out there? We're doing better and we're doing worse, and it's all at once. Okay. You know, the uh Willingness of people to talk more openly, support groups, conversation, the success of this podcast and all your work, John, is so positive. The development of some new treatments, I don't want to overhype them, some new ideas, some new models of treatment is also hopeful. But at the same time, the shortage of mental health practitioners is severe. The ability to get insurance in America, there's 40 million people who have no health insurance, the disparities in health care and mental health care are real and not getting better. And so it's difficult to know how we're doing because you could answer it from many, many, many angles. Are more people seeking help? Yes. Is that a good thing? Yes. Are we making enough child psychiatrists? Heck no. Right. And is there a master plan to quadruple the number? I haven't seen it. Is suicide on the rise in some populations? The answer is definitely yes. And what does that tell us about how we're doing? It tells us we're not doing very well. So I think there's a lot of answers to that question. I think it's a surprisingly hard question. But I do think the fact that 130 people use their name to share their story is kind of groundbreaking. Yeah. And I could have kept going. I just ran out of time, John, because I had to meet a deadline. <laughs> you know all about writing deadlines. Oh, yeah. There's something very beautiful about this idea that we can be a resource for each other. Because it might take four months to find a child psychiatrist. 
And while you're waiting, you might be able to learn from another parent or from another teenager. And I think that's powerful. It doesn't replace professional help. It's all both end. The book is You Are Not Alone, the NAMI Guide to Navigating Mental Health with advice from experts and wisdom from real individuals and their families. Ken Duckworth, thank you so much. John, I can't get the image of Bigfoot out of my head. <laughs> and I'm going to I'm gonna do a quick YouTube scan just for my own satisfaction so I can connect with your favorite coping strategy. There, There is some very poor costume making in the yes. world of YouTube <laughs> Bigfoot videos. <laughs> so be forewarned that the, uh, the seamstress work is not always great. <laughs> Your mileage may vary. Your mileage may vary. John, I want to I thank you for what you do and who you are. Oh. I view you as a beacon of this whole movement. Wow. And your book, which I loved, this podcast, all we can do is share what we're going through with each other. That opens the space for someone else to say, yeah, me too. I'm in this experience. And I feel like you've been a leader for a very long time. And I just want to acknowledge that and thank you. Well, thanks, Ken. I, you know, I, I've, I've said it before, but I, I sometimes feel like I'm just throwing rocks at a giant with the work that we do, but mm. I also have a lot of rocks and I know where to get more rocks. <laughs> so. you, have a, you have a gun of an arm. I mean, you're kind of a Roberto Clemente equivalent. Oh, wow. Okay. You have I'll a take gun that. of an arm, John. I mean, that guy is out going to third. It's not happening. So I'm glad. Keep slinging him. That's Dr. Ken Duckworth. We have links to his book on our show page, or just go to NAMI, N-A-M-I dot org. Okay, so now you're an expert, and now we can change the world. Let's go do that. Next time on Depression Mode, if you have fame, success, and an incredibly lucrative NBA contract, you got it made, right? Wrong. There were times where I was so dark, and so depressed where I almost was considering retiring. I didn't want to outwardly face 22,000 fans night after night. It was like exhausting having to play this character. I thought to myself, you know what? I have to show up because if I just get that next accolade, if I just hit that next milestone, if I just get that next contract, if I just do this and this and this and this, but then you're just left with the brain you still have. NBA center Kevin Love of the Cleveland Cavaliers joins us. If people support our show, we get to have a show. If they don't, we don't. Simple as that. We want to have a show. Please help us. If you're already helping us, if you're already donating and a member, that's wonderful. We really appreciate it. If you haven't joined yet, it's easy to do. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash join, select Depression Mode among the shows, and then find a level that works for you. I'm not going to ask you for $10,000. If you want to donate $10,000, you sure could. Find a level that works for you. The important thing is we all come together to make this thing that helps the world. You know, it's all about, it's all about helping the world because we're experts. Be sure to hit subscribe. Give us five stars. Write wonderful reviews. That helps the show get out into the world. Please know that on October 4th, 10-4, good buddy, the paperback version of my memoir, The Hilarious World of Depression, will be published. So it's available. Grab it and go. Paperback version. 
Um, it's there's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of my history in it. There's a lot of really great thoughts from a variety of celebrities that I talk to. The hilarious world of depression in paperback, October fourth, wherever books are sold. Not available where books are not sold because it's a book. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available in the United States by calling 988. Just those three numbers. Remember them, 988 or 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text HOME to 741-741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at maximumfun.org. Our Facebook discussion group, Preshies, is active. Lots of great conversation going on there. People helping each other. Sense a theme? I do. Our Depression Mode newsletter is on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hi, Credits listeners. A lot of people remember that in an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, Steve Austin fights Bigfoot. You might not recall that Bigfoot also appears on an episode of The Bionic Woman. And he can teleport. At one point, this guy that Bigfoot works with decides to go back up to California with Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, as he calls him. Here's what that sounds like. The Sasquatch and I are going back up to California. I love that little bloop sound at the end. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. We get wonderful booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building Gabe from Allentown, Pennsylvania here. Just keep breathing. You've made it this far. Just keep breathing. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.